Oh, gracious and almighty God, we praise you. We praise you, O oh God, for you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abandoning in steadfast love, forgiving, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sins. Indeed, precious God, we praise you and we thank you that you've given us your word so that it might assure us again afresh this morning of your graciousness, of your kindness, and of your love, particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, help me as I preach your word to preach faithfully, to preach not my own words, but your word. We pray that we would all pay attention to your word and listen, and that you would teach us your ways, O oh Lord, and make known to us the truth of your word, that we might love it and that we might walk in it. And we pray these things for the glory of Christ. Amen. Uh, Luke 7, uh, verses 36 to 50. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an, alab an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this morning we'll be looking at another parable that Jesus told. And this time it's about the forgiving of debts. And I think the out of the two parables about the forgiving of debts, I think we all know the one about the unforgiving servant better than this one. And this is a very short parable put in the midst of a larger body of text and we'll be working through those 15 verses. But this is a parable Jesus told about a really important issue, the forgiveness of sins. But also the response of those whose sins have been forgiven. And I want to ask you this morning, are you someone here who struggles with the assurance of forgiveness? 
Do you struggle with the assurance that God has forgiven you? Are you often troubled, not by sin, for that is a good thing, but are you troubled by sin that has already been confessed to God and repented of? Again, this is not a, a good sorrow over sin that I'm talking about. But even when you've confessed it to God, you've said, God, I'm leaving it in your care, even then, the sin still troubles you and does not give you peace. Are you someone who struggles with assurance? Do you lack peace and joy constantly in the Christian life, weighed down by these burdens that others seem to not, other Christians seem to not have? Well, as we'll see this morning, forgiveness of sin is one of the central themes that has run through all of Scripture, and we're going to see it here this morning, for it's the one, of, one of the great ends of the gospel and of salvation. For ultimately, we will all stand before God, either forgiven or unforgiven. As, as Paul read out for us just before from Jonah chapter 3 and 4, Jonah knew this truth about God. He knew how forgiving God was. And the fact is, he liked it when it suited him, but he didn't like it when it suited uh, anyone else. Because Jonah knew, as he said, that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And the thing is, the Ninevites found out about God's forgiving nature as well. But only one of them, well, I should say the whole city compared to Jonah, actually realised and understood and tasted the goodness and sweetness of God's forgiveness. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. But first, before I do, something worthy of noting is that this account in Luke is similar in some respects, but different from a very similar account in the other three Gospels. And this is the, the account of Martha, sorry, Mary, the sister of Martha. Uh, this is different. And these other three accounts all talk about um, Mary coming and doing a very similar thing to Jesus. And yes, anointing his feet. And yes, he's crying as well, but she anoints his head. Yes, it's in the house of a person called Simon, but as we'll see today, it's about Simon the Pharisee. Uh, but Mary uh, does it in, in the house of Simon the leper. But regardless, these women, Mary and this sinful woman here, we're not given her name. We see the depth of the love that they have for Christ. And we'll see the depth of this love for a woman who loves Jesus so much because he's forgiven her so much. As we unpack this passage, I want you to see that God's forgiveness of our great debt of sin motivates our love for him. And as we work our way through the text, um, I have three points this morning. The first is the humiliating act of a woman's love. Next, the forgiveness of a great debt. And lastly, the assurance of of a forgiving saviour. Have a look with me at verses 36 to 38, the humiliating act of a woman's love. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Before this passage, Jesus had just talked about how the Pharisees were never happy with him. If you have a look earlier on in that chapter, they were never happy 
with him or John the Baptist. John the Baptist, on the one hand, they thought was too, too sad, as it were, and Jesus was too happy. That maybe John was too austere and Jesus was, too, was reveling too much. But something they also didn't like was the fact that Jesus ate with the wrong kind of people. If Jesus was a rabbi, if he was a prophet, if he was someone who was meant to be holy, and they certainly would have seen Jesus living a blameless life. They, what, what, what really put a bee in their bonnet, as it were, was that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. Sinners and tax collectors, those whom the Pharisees despised. If Jesus was a rabbi and a holy man, why did he seek these people out rather than others who, who had maybe a more outwardly moral standing in the community? Well, Luke 5, verses 29 to 32, it says this, And Levi, or this is talking about Matthew, the tax collector, uh, who became one of the apostles, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." to repentance. Why did Jesus come down? To seek and to save the lost. Not those who thought they could find their own way to God, but to call sinners to repentance, not those who are self-righteous. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, it says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, as Paul said, of whom I am the foremost. Is this not the message of the gospel? Jesus Christ came for sinners. And we will see this contrast here in this, uh, in this surrounding, uh, in this passage and in the parable, as it were. We see two people, the Pharisee and the woman. For that's who the parable represents, the Pharisee and the woman. The self-righteous and the sinner. And the interesting thing is, both of them are sinners. But only one of them realizes the depth of their sin. And when Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, that's not those who are actually righteous. It's the self-righteous, like the Pharisees. So here, Jesus, yes, he usually eats with tax collectors and sinners, but we see here in the passage that a Pharisee asked Jesus to eat with him. Why did he ask Jesus to eat in his house. For we see from the rest of the passage that he didn't like Jesus very much. He didn't love Jesus as this woman did. It wasn't love or true devotion. Maybe it was popularity. Because Jesus was quite popular. Many crowds followed Jesus and maybe this would uh, uh, elevate this Pharisee and maybe gain him more respect. Who knows? Or was it guilt for Jesus' earlier words? That nagging voice of guilt maybe Jesus hadn't come for him and maybe he wanted to see more about what Jesus was saying even though he didn't like Jesus. Or maybe it was for entertainment. Maybe he did it to see what Jesus would do or maybe he did it to trap Jesus in his own words as we see uh, later on many times in the Gospels. But regardless of the invitation, Jesus went there as Simon the Pharisee's guest. He actually went into the house of a sinner but one who was self-righteous. 
Now, in these days, as they would um, come to, to eat, uh, they would recline, recline at the table. We, we sit up and we eat at a table like we would sit and you know, have both hands free. But they would recline at the table and usually they, had, they would have one hand, I think usually their right hand, that would be more easily able to grab the food. And as they would lie on these beds, they would all face inwards and their feet would be facing outwards. And usually a good host would provide water for their guests, not, not just to drink, but water for their feet and maybe even a servant to wash the feet, as we uh, have heard in John 13 about Jesus when he washed his disciples' feet. A, a good host would have done this for his guest, particularly one, a traveling rabbi like Jesus, for the streets were dusty and their feet would be dirty, as I said before in the children's talk, dirty and stinky and dusty. And as we find out later, this Pharisee didn't even provide water for Jesus to wash his feet. It was an offense, one that Jesus does not bring up, as we sometimes do when we hold an offense, but to show the Pharisee a lesson. And this Pharisee doesn't even greet Christ with a kiss of love or anoint him, his head, with, with, even with an inexpensive oil or ointment. And though Jesus was invited, he was not respected or loved by this Pharisee. But we will see someone who does love Jesus. In verse 37, we see this woman. It says that when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And this woman was a sinner. And it was most likely based on that language and that that phrasing is that she was probably a prostitute. But regardless of that, she was a despised member in the community. And we see that she's well known later on when, when Simon is thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman was. Simon knew who this woman was. And Simon didn't really, didn't like, as a Pharisee, wouldn't have associated with that kind of people, and yet he knew who this woman was. So this woman had a bad reputation and yet she still came. She would have been unwelcome and she would have known that she was unwelcome and she would have known that as soon as she stepped in that room, every single person in the room was judging her, except for one. And she hadn't come for the rest of the room. She'd come for one. As John Gill said, Whatever this woman had been, it seemed God had affected her heart with the word which Christ had preached and filled it with the pure love of God and Christ instead of its former fullness of impure love and made her sins as bitter as they had been formerly pleasant to her. As soon as she learned that Jesus was there, she had to come. She couldn't not come. It's like one of the ten lepers who was healed. Nine of them kept going on when they found out they were healed, but one of them had to come back to Jesus to show his thankfulness and his love. And as a bug at, at, at night when there's a light there, and as, as bugs are attracted to that light, in, this, in the very same way, sinners who have been awakened to their sin but also to the mercy of God in Christ, cannot help but be attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have 
to come. They can't not come. And what did she bring? She brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Alabaster was an expensive, an expensive material, and it would have likely been a costly um, perfumed ointment or oil that she brought. She didn't bring something inexpensive and cheap. No, she brought something expensive to, to reflect her love for Christ. And you can imagine the scene. They're all reclining at the table and Jesus' feet are sticking out. And this woman comes at the feet of Jesus and she stands behind him at his feet. And that's all that likely she can get to. And in fact, that's all that she, can probably, that's all that she probably wants to do because she feels unworthy. She feels unworthy. As John the Baptist said, that he was not even worthy to untie the sandal of Christ. And this is not how this woman would have felt. Unworthy. And this woman, she doesn't just stand there, she starts crying. And that word means a loud weeping and wailing. It's not like someone sobbing quietly in the corner that, that, that maybe a lot of people don't notice, but only a few people do. No, everyone in the room would have noticed. And some of the Pharisees certainly noticed. It's like when someone is sobbing loudly near you and, and sometimes their sorrow or pain, their intense emotion makes you feel uncomfortable. And surely this woman would have made everyone in the room feel a bit uncomfortable. Not only is she a sinner and below them, but she's sobbing uncontrollably. But as soon as she starts weeping and doing what she does next, they can guess the reason why she is weeping. Well, what does she do? As she's weeping, she wets his feet with the tears. Jesus' feet were dirty. The Pharisee had provided no water, but God's grace provided the solution in the woman's tears. Then she wiped them with the hair of her head. Not only was it enough for her to wipe them with something else, or wipe them with her hand, or wipe them with a garment of her own, no, she wiped them with her hair. And for a Jewish woman to let down her hair, it was indecent even immoral. But this woman doesn't even care. She doesn't even care. Why? Because she's so overcome with love and thankfulness for Christ. So now Jesus' feet are clean. And usually this is the task for the lowliest of servants. But this is how willing the woman is to humiliate herself. Not just in front of Christ, in front of everyone in the room. For the sake of Christ. And she then next puts this expensive ointment on his feet. What a display of love and humility. Don't gloss over these words. I want you to feel these emotions that this woman is feeling. Out of love for Christ. She willingly humbles herself. It would have taken great courage to go in. It would have been deeply humiliating just to be there in the presence of one Pharisee, let alone a whole room as likely of people that the Pharisee and Jesus were feasting with. I imagine she would have felt the judgment of the stares of the people, of everyone there. But she had come for the one for whom she would never feel a condemning gaze. The one who had lovingly forgiven her. 
the friend of sinners, the one who had come to seek and to save the lost, the one who would gaze at her with compassion and tenderness. Can you imagine how she felt? Have you ever entered a room or a party or something like that where you felt out of place, where you felt uncomfortable as soon as you stepped in the building? Maybe you only, maybe it was a party and you only knew that person who was having the party. And you had to brave, and and you're a massive introvert, and you have to brave going into that party. You're nervous. Or a wedding where you only know the bride and groom. Or maybe even just one of the bride or the groom. Love willingly humbles itself under God's hand. Love willingly humbles itself and places itself under God's hand. Love entrusts itself to Christ. Love comes to Christ and love is willing to risk humiliation for the sake of Christ. Because it is all absorbed with the desire that Christ be honoured above all. Love for Christ deserves to honour him and to serve him and to forsake everything for the sake of him. Would this describe your love for Christ? This all-absorbing love? Would this describe your love for Christ? And do you willingly submit yourself in humility to Christ and his will? Or does this display of love make you feel uncomfortable? It doesn't sit right with you. Does someone displaying intense love and zeal for Jesus make you feel uncomfortable? Maybe when you see a new Christian, do you say, that's, you know, that's good for them? All right, they're a new Christian. That, that, that's the reason for their zeal and their love. And this woman presumably was newly converted. And she had this zeal and love. But when you see a new Christian and they have zeal and love, do you say, you know what, or, or think in your head, you know, just, just, wait, just wait a year, maybe a few years, and that, that love and that zeal, it'll become matured and it will, it will lessen. Let me tell you, if your faith matures, your zeal and love for Christ should not lessen. It will change in its, in its quality in some respects because it will have a deeper knowledge of Christ. And as you have a deeper knowledge of Christ, as you have walked more closely with him, you should be even more willing to love him. You should be even more zealous for Christ. So shame on us if our love and zeal wanes and gets less and grows cold. This is why Jesus condemns the church in Ephesus for losing this love. There were good qualities that Jesus commended the church at Ephesus for in the book of Revelation. But he has this one thing against them and he says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you have at first. And Jesus says that they needed to repent. In Matthew 24 verse 12, Jesus says that in the last days, Because lawlessness or sin will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Love for others, yes, but particularly love for Christ, love for God. The love of many will grow cold. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, let, let that not be this church. Let that not be this church. But let us seek to always grow in humility, and thankfulness and love for Christ. And that is why whoever steps into this pulpit has to keep reminding us all of the love and mercy found in Christ. The glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen this first point of the humiliating act of a woman's love. But next we see in verses 39 to 47, the forgiveness of a great debt. Have a look with me at verse 39. We see under this point, firstly, the self-righteousness of the Pharisee. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Can you sense the scorn in his thoughts? Or in the words spoken quietly to himself? The Pharisees, like those rulers surrounding Jesus later at the cross in Luke 23. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And why do I say that? Because they had connected king of the Jews with, uh, in complete contrast and, and, and a contradiction in terms with the very fact that he would be dying on a cross. And here the Pharisee has put two things together which shouldn't be there. In his mind, if Jesus were a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. He wouldn't let this woman, a sinner, touch him. Wrong. Strike one, Simon. In his mind, he says, if Jesus were a prophet, he would firstly know who this woman was, as Simon the Pharisee knew. And if he knew, he wouldn't even let her anywhere near him. And since Jesus had, he mustn't be a prophet. He couldn't be a prophet. He just couldn't. Strike one, Simon. Wrong assumption. And notice that the Pharisee said it to himself. And yet Jesus answered his private mutterings. That would have stopped Simon in his false mutterings. Because ironically, Jesus was a prophet. He knew exactly what Simon was saying and thinking. We see the self-righteousness of this Pharisee. But next we see the parable that Jesus told in verses 41 to 43. Let me start actually verse 40. Jesus answered him. He answered the, un, uh, the, the quiet mutterings of Simon. He said, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And here we come to the parable. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. There's one moneylender, two debtors who couldn't pay back one owed 50, the other owed 500. One debt is 10 times the debt of the other. 
And, 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 and bring it into approximate terms, in today's terms, one will be like $10,000, right? And one $100,000. A, a denarius is about a day's wage for a, for a lowly common laborer. But, a, but about $10,000 and $100,000 forgiven, cancelled. The debt is gone. But one debt is 10 times the other debt. What happened? The money lender had mercy on both. He wasn't obligated to give that mercy. He didn't have to cancel the debts. And yet he did. He cancelled the debts of both of them. He didn't put them on a payment plan. He didn't say just you know, pay off a slightly lesser amount. He fully cancelled the debts of both. Now, the debtors would have had to come to this realization first that they couldn't pay the debt back. Because if there's no realization that they can't pay it back, they will forever be wallowing debt, trying to pay off something that they simply cannot. But the moneylender wipes away the debt and absorbs that debt himself. Because there is someone ultimately who has to pay for that debt. It's the moneylender who pays for the debt. The parable is simple. Punchy, plain, obvious. Even a Pharisee could see it. So simple that maybe even Simon feared that there was a trick to Jesus' question in verse 42. Now which one of them will love him more? This is Jesus' principle. What does Simon say? The one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And Jesus affirmed him as correct. But what the Pharisee affirms as correct in a parable The Pharisee is still spiritually blind. He may be able to work out a logical problem in front of him in a parable, but he's still spiritually blind. This is Jesus' principle. The larger the debt, the greater the forgiveness, the greater the love in response. The greater the debt, the greater the forgiveness, the greater the love in response when that debt is cancelled. If someone pays, for example, a parking fine that we've incurred, $86, whatever it is, we are thankful to them. But if someone pays off, let's just say we had mountains of debt, our credit cards, 10 of them, are maxed out, gaining interest, every single one of them, at an exorbitant amount. We've defaulted on other loans. We can't back, pay back a loan shark, whoever we've, a lender we've tried to borrow from. We've redrawn on a mortgage. And you know what? Imagine if all that debt, someone came along and said, you know what, I'm going to pay your debt. And you said, like a little bit of it? He said, no, I'm going to pay all of it. Who would be more thankful? The second person or the person who has his parking fine paid for? I saw this with an employee I used to work with. And again, she's like the second person. She'd maxed out her credit cards, had an expensive home in the North Shore. Her husband couldn't find a job. They'd redrawn on the mortgage. They'd borrowed money from parents. And she was miserable. She was miserable every single day that she came into work. Miserable. She felt trapped she felt trapped but is this not the way that we must see sin 
before we were saved, as it were. And even now that we are saved, we look back on the mountain of debt that we have before God, that God has forgiven, and we look back in love. Jesus told us to pray this. He says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Sin is described in the Bible as a debt. A debt that we cannot pay because we incur a debt with our sin because we fail to meet an obligation before God. And you know what that obligation is? That standard? Perfection. Perfection. We fail to incur credit or righteousness before God and instead we incur debit or sin before God. There's no neutral ground. The debit must be paid for and the credit must be given. But we will see that later on. But this is the standard that we all must meet outside of Christ. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength perfectly every single second that you have a breath. And if you can't do that, not even a little bit, you failed, you've sinned against the whole law. We must be perfect as God is perfect. And if you don't measure up to the standard, you incur a debt against God. And this woman realized her debt before God. The Pharisee did not see his. And yet this woman had, both had sin, but only one had been awakened to see the misery and ruin of her sin. The misery and ruin of her sin. But next we see in verses 44 to 47, this contrast of the self-righteous and the sinner. Have a look with me at verse 44. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but... This woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Notice now that Jesus, he turns to the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. He wants this woman to understand that he values her and what she has done And yet he still has to teach Simon before he speaks to the woman. He now brings this parable. Like Nathan the prophet with David, he tells the parable to David when David has sinned with Bathsheba. And David is incensed against this this, this wrongdoer in this parable. And you know what Nathan says? You are the man. He brings the parable to bear directly and applies it directly to this Pharisee. He says, you are the one who thinks that you've got a small debt before God, and that's why you have no love for me. This Pharisee gave no water for his feet. Strike two. This woman wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Pharisee gave him no kiss. Strike three. If we can measure sin by strikes. This woman had not ceased to kiss his feet from the moment Jesus said that he'd entered into the building. This woman hadn't even waited you know, half an hour to, you know, to, to kind of make her own. No, she'd done it immediately. This Pharisee did not anoint his head with oil. Another strike. And yet this woman had anointed his feet with ointment. 
with oil. The one who expressed lowly service, the woman. The one who expressed affection, the woman. The one who expressed her generosity, the oil, is the woman. With every one of these, Jesus drives the nail deeper and deeper and deeper. So this Pharisee will understand. Bottom line, verse 47, he says this, Therefore, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. This is the, the application of both the parable and the scenario in real life which Jesus and the Pharisee and the woman were at. And it's important to understand the cause and effect here because the first sentence in verse 47 can be slightly ambiguous about the cause and effect. Does the love merit God's forgiveness or does the forgiveness bring about the love? Because it doesn't mean that she's forgiven because she loves much. No, she loves much because she's forgiven much. If I could put the first sentence of verse 47 in a slightly different way, it says, Her many sins have been forgiven. And how do we know this? For she loves much. How many, uh, her many sins have been forgiven. How do we know this? For she loves much. The love is the evidence, the effect, not the cause, but the effect of the forgiveness. In other words, she who has been forgiven much loves much. But the second sentence reinforces this in the opposite way, speaking about the Pharisee here. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The Pharisee had no understanding of grace and forgiveness. And we even see it in his treatment of this, of this woman. The Pharisee had no understanding of grace and forgiveness because he has no understanding of God or his great debt before God. And this is what you need to see to understand God's grace is actually the sin that makes that grace necessary. And it's not even that he had a little sin to be forgiven. But Jesus said here, he who is forgiven little loves little. No, it's not, it's not like he's forgiven a little amount of sin. But he's forgiven a little amount in his own eyes. Just like they're, they're righteous in their own eyes. That is why Jesus says elsewhere, elsewhere, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. No, Jesus had come to call sinners because those who know they're sinners. So I ask you here today, if you are ignorant of these things, do you realize the debt that you have before God? If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you realize the debt that you have before God? Or are you stubborn and refuse to acknowledge your great guilt that is heaped up before God? Because the word of God bears witness that if you refuse to see your sin or repent of it, you will stand before God on judgment day. You will have to pay that debt off. And let me tell you, you can't pay that debt off. You will be trying to pay that debt off, or I should say suffering for that debt forever and ever and ever. Because this debt of sin that we have before God by our nature is like a, a, a mound, a great, great mountain between us and God, a, a putrid, filthy, stinking, rotting mountain of sin and 
debt that we have before God. An infinite debt that we cannot repay. And if you are in here today and you are self-righteous, let me tell you what your sin is before God. Your sin is rebellion against God. It is rising up against Him as an enemy. It is striving and contending with God. It is despising Him. It is high treason against God. It is refusing to confess your sin before God. It is refusing to be reconciled with God. It deceives, what sin does is it deceives the heart. It lessens its seriousness. It cheapens God's grace. It rejects Christ. It provokes God to anger. It tries to overthrow God's sovereignty. It rejects his all-sufficiency. It supplants his wisdom. It spurns his grace. It challenges his justice. It denies his all-seeing eye. And it presumes on his patience. Do you realize, if you were here this morning and you were self-righteous before God, do you realize you're dead before God? In short, sin transgresses the holy law of an infinite eternal God and so incurs an infinite eternal debt before him. And this is what the woman realized. In small part or in great, this woman knew how deep her sin was and she would come to know that sin even more and more. Let your conscience be struck by the weight of sin and look for Christ Look to Christ for the paying off of that debt. Because outside of Christ, we're hopeless. That debt can never be repaid. But lastly, we will see the assurance of a forgiving Saviour. The assurance of a forgiving Saviour. Have a look with me, verse 48 to 50. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus, still looking at the woman, addresses her now. And he said the most beautiful thing to her. She knew her sins had been forgiven because that is what motivated her love. And yet Jesus reminded her afresh of her pardon by him. Her faith, Jesus said, had saved her. Not the faith technically itself, but the faith that had laid hold of the one at whose feet she was. Her faith had laid hold of the one who gave that forgiveness. She was forgiven. She was saved. She was at peace with God. And so she could walk out of there at peace. Because she had an objective peace with God, she could walk out of there with a subjective peace. Now it's possible that in coming to the Pharisee's house that she had the horrible memories of her sin which still would have been fresh. And it's possible that she, to the day that she died, her sin and the memories of her sin still haunted her. As our sins of our, of our previous life, as it were, before Christ, can still plague us at times. 
to the day that we die. But this woman, Jesus was saying, can go out from his presence knowing that she was forgiven, knowing that she was pardoned with an assurance of his love, a release from all her plague and guilt and anxiety over sin. Because sometimes when we bring our sin to God and we confess it to God and we plead for forgiveness and we repent of it, we do not have peace in our heart. We do not have joy that our sins are forgiven. But let me, let me warn you, this is often unbelief. This is often unbelief. But maybe you say, God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Have you ever heard that before? I've just got to forgive myself. Or you say to someone else, you, might, you just got to forgive yourself. That's unbelief. The Bible never says you need to forgive yourself. What the Bible says is that you need to have an estimation of yourself that is the same as God's. And in God's sight, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from it. So you don't need to forgive yourself. You need to trust that you are forgiven in Christ. The remedy is not to look to yourself and work up a bit of forgiveness in your own heart. It's to look to Christ and the forgiveness that he gives. Because desiring the need to forgive yourself is the height of unbelief. Because we hold a view of ourselves that is different to that of God's. It is true that sometimes God will trouble us with sins. Even after we've repented of it to him, these sins are so grievous that he teaches us a lesson. That is true. But if you keep coming to God and you keep repenting of that sin and confessing it to God again and again and again, and that sin still troubles you, then maybe it is unbelief. And if you have that unbelief, let me tell you, you need to repent of that unbelief. And you need to ask God to help you to trust his promises that he will forgive you, even as Danny read out, from us, out for us from Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Your identity and your status is forgiven and justified in God's sight. And this woman may have been tempted to view herself as the sin as the she was in the past and her reputation would have followed her, much to her shame, But this woman needed to go away with joy and peace because her sins had been forgiven. Believer, Christ says to you this morning, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. You are no longer under the guilt of that sin. Go out of this building this morning in peace. I have forgiven all your trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This my Father has set aside, nailing that debt to the cross. Jesus says, though your your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. If I, Jesus says, should mark iniquities, who could stand? 
But with me there is forgiveness that I may be feared. Jesus has forgiven all our debt. There is not a single sin that Jesus has not said forgiven. May we meditate. this sweet truth, this blessed truth of the forgiveness of Christ. And may, out of that forgiveness, may we love the one who has forgiven us forever and ever and ever. And may that bring great and sweet peace to our souls. And may we walk out of here this morning forgiven cleansed and at peace. Let me pray. Oh, gracious Christ, though sin has increased, grace has abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, you, you, Lord Jesus, might forgive our sins, that you might credit us with your righteousness, You are the only one, Lord Jesus, who has paid that debt for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would walk out of here with great love for you, with great peace and joy, knowing that we have been forgiven in you. Please, by your spirit, cause these truths to resonate deep within our souls. Cause our hearts to really taste the truth of your forgiveness of us and our great debt before God. We thank you that in you, Lord Jesus, in your death and resurrection, you have paid for sin, you have triumphed over sin, and all that is left in its place is forgiveness and life in you. Indeed, Lord Jesus, for those in this building who are self-righteous, or have not come to you, we pray that your spirit would open their eyes to see and behold their great debt and the weight of their sin. But <clears throat> let that not be the only thing they see, because all that would lead to would be despair. But Lord Jesus, please show them your glory and your beauty, that they might run to you and lay hold of you by faith. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.